Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. This week, we're going to talk with Daniel Ramey, probably a familiar name for many of you who are regular listeners to our podcast series. Daniel is a usual host of this podcast, but he's also a senior research associate here at RFF. And today, we're going to be talking about Daniel's latest research on the oil and gas industry. He recently released a paper called The Greenhouse Gas Impacts of Increased U.S. Oil and Gas Production. So we'll be talking about that further. Stay with us. Daniel Ramey, I'd like to welcome you to Resources Radio, where you have been a number of times before, but always on the proverbial other side of the microphone. So it's really nice to have you here uh, as, a, as a researcher and as a guest, in addition, of course, to your being a host of the podcast regularly. So welcome. Thank you, Kristen. It's, uh, it feels somehow familiar, but somehow different. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really excited that our listeners get to hear from you as a researcher, because that's obviously the, the majority of your capacity here at RFF. So, um, so tell us a little bit more about your background working on, on energy issues. What was one of the first forays you had in particular into working on, on oil and gas issues? I basically fell into it by accident uh, when I was in graduate school. So I uh, did a master's degree in public policy at Duke University. And in between my first and second year, I um, I did an internship at the North Carolina Department of Environment and Natural Resources. That's, that's what it was called then. It's called something else now. But um, I knew I was interested in energy and environmental policy, but uh, that internship really took me in the direction of oil and gas issues in particular. So while I was doing my internship working largely in the state house in North Carolina in the state Senate, there was a bill that was passed by the legislature asking the department to do a study of the potential for shale gas development in North Carolina. Mm. And for whatever reason, I thought that I could uh, do part of that study. I really was not qualified in any way, but I raised my hand anyway. And good job, um, good and job. <laughs> yeah, you know, I took the initiative, and um, amazingly, they they let me write a chapter of the study, and um, I ended up turning that chapter into my master's thesis while I was at Duke, and uh, through that process, met um, a variety of other researchers, and just sort of have kept on plowing ahead in that vein ever since. That's great. That's great. I actually thought there was going to be a. Uh an oil and gas well pun in there when you say, well, you just kind of fell into it. That's right. At least you didn't trip over a well bore. There you um, go. Yeah. Well, yeah, I thought yeah. I I thought I did it when I said I just kept plugging away. Um, <laughs> there you go. There yeah. you go. It's amazing how many energy puns you can fit into things, like drilling down on certain topics. It's true. It's we could fill up this whole podcast just making energy <laughs> puns over and over again. Our audience would love it. I don't think our audience is going to want too many podcasts where we just talk to each other, but for one, it's really, it is quite entertaining. So, well, that's great, Daniel. Of course, we are super thrilled here at RFF that you had, have continued to work on energy issues because you work on them with us. And um, so I wanted to talk today about some of your very latest research, which I believe was just released February 11th? Yeah, sometime in the last couple of weeks. Okay, great. So quite quite a recent piece of research, and it's titled The Greenhouse Gas Impacts of Increased uh, U.S. Oil and Gas Production. So I took a look at some of the materials produced related to your paper, and one of them, one of the press release actually noted that there has been plenty of debate about the climate impacts of the shale revolution in the U.S. or their impacts on carbon emissions, 
But many of the studies or many of the analyses have focused more on the gas side than on on the oil side. So why do you think that that may be? Why has the oil production side gotten perhaps less attention in this particular area than the natural gas side? Yeah, well, definitely. I think there's kind of two reasons for it. First, in the popular narrative, I think the shale boom has been a story of natural gas for the most part. I mean, if you read most newspaper articles that talk about shale development in the U.S., they use they, they often use the term shale gas. Um, similarly, you know, there there was this film in 2010 or 2011 called Gasland uh, that made a big splash. People have talked a lot about the um, greenhouse gas impacts of of uh, methane emissions and methane, of course, is essentially the same thing as natural gas. And so, I think from a popular perspective, that's that's one of the main reasons is um, you, you know this boom really did start off as a natural gas boom primarily in mm-hmm. uh, northern Texas and other regions, but over time it's shifted and it's become more and more of an oil story over time. Um, I, I think in the scholarly community, one of the reasons that natural gas has received more attention than oil is uh, for, for partly the same reasons that I just mentioned. I think natural gas has been kind of the driver of the popular narrative, but it, it's also relatively easy. It's not easy, but it's relatively easy to estimate the effects of natural gas on greenhouse gas emissions in the United States because natural gas is traded uh, primarily domestically. It's produced domestically. It's mostly consumed domestically. There are some imports and exports, but for the most part, it's sort of a contained system within the U.S., right. and it's relatively mm-hmm. easy to model um, domestic changes in the energy mix when you have a supply shock of natural gas in one direction or another, mm-hmm. whereas with the oil story, you sort of have to think globally about the uh, the global impacts because oil is a globally traded commodity. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's the element that I that I think is kind of new here and that I, I think is Help, uh, that I hope is helpful in the conversation. Great. Thanks, Daniel. So I know in the paper, you look both at domestic effects and at, at global effects. As you noted, that's a very important distinction between the oil and gas markets as well. But can you start by telling us a little bit about effects that you found within U.S. borders and then maybe move on to telling us about some of those global impacts? Sure. So I'll do this pretty quickly. And I just want to acknowledge at the outset that there are a lot of assumptions here and a lot of important um, uncertainties that I, I won't emphasize in my response, but I, I'll encourage people to go look in the paper and um, get a sense of what what some of these um, ranges are um, and uncertainties are, because I think they are important. But uh, first, looking domestically, what I do in the paper is I basically use the U.S. Energy Information Administration's annual energy outlook, and they produce a variety of scenarios that estimate energy production, consumption, trends over time out to the year 2050. Mm -hmm. And so I take three different scenarios. One of them is essentially a high oil and gas production scenario. Uh, One of them is a low oil and gas production scenario. And one of them is a reference case, which is kind of in the middle. And in the paper, I compare those three scenarios with each other. And I focus on comparing the high oil and gas scenario with the low oil and gas scenario, just to sort of see what the range uh, of effects might be from uh, this, you know, recently growing U.S. oil and gas production. Okay, so just to clarify, that is the high high oil and gas production compared to low oil and gas production is still just domestic production, at least. Is that right? 
That's correct. That's right. Okay. So, uh, so these changes in domestic production, um, they have important effects domestically and then internationally. So, so I'll first talk about the domestic effects. Domestically, in a world where we have uh, high oil and gas production, generally what you find is that um, in the electricity sector, natural gas displaces coal, and that tends to reduce emissions. But natural sure. gas also yep. displaces uh, nuclear, and it displaces investment in new renewables that are increasing increasingly becoming cost competitive okay. uh, on the grid. And that's compared to the reference case, is that right? Compared to what we predict without changes in you know this higher oil and gas production scenario? That's right. So if you look at the high oil and gas scenario and compare it to either the reference case or the low oil and gas scenario, uh, you see a lot more natural gas, uh, substantially less nuclear, and substantially less renewables. Sure. Okay. Uh, you Makes also sense. see substantially <laughs> less coal, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's interesting to 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 know. You know, does that net out to uh, an emissions reduction or an emissions increase? Mm-hmm. There are other roles here as well. Um, in the United States, uh, if we produce more oil here at home. The U.S. faces global oil prices, so the effects are somewhat muted, but the U.S. does also consume more oil in a world where we produce more oil. Not a huge surprise. And is that because we lower the price? We increase supply and we lower the price of that oil? So That's therefore right. we consume more of it? Yeah. That's right. So in the high oil and gas production scenario, the, the oil price, the global oil price is about $80 a barrel. Mm-hmm. In the low oil and gas scenario, the global oil price is about $100 per barrel. Okay. So that delta of $20 you know, makes a difference uh, sure. when yeah. it comes to long-term oil consumption uh, in the U.S. and globally. But um, but in the U.S., really, the, the big effects are seen uh, with this natural gas fuel switching question, natural gas competing with coal, nuclear, and renewables. There's also a really important role here that methane emissions play. We haven't talked about methane emissions much, but mm-hmm. methane, which is the primary component of natural gas, if it escapes from oil or gas wells or natural gas pipelines or other infrastructure, has a very powerful greenhouse gas effect. And so I incorporate a range of estimates of methane emissions uh, that basically increase the greenhouse gas footprint of oil and gas production in a high oil and gas scenario. So it's not right. just that not it's not just that we're using more oil and natural gas. It's also in a high oil and gas production scenario, we're emitting more methane. Right. Um, right. And that has a substantial effect as well. So and I know that some of those estimates around how much methane is actually released during oil and gas production, those can be there's still some debate over those. There have been a number of different estimates that have come out. So you mentioned you used a range of those. Are there any particular sources that you were relying on to develop that range? Yeah. So as you say, there's been a lot of discussion about this question of methane emissions. And what I do in the paper is I use I basically benchmark things off two estimates. One of them is from the U.S. EPA and its annual greenhouse gas inventory. Um, but my central case is actually uh, a little bit higher than the U.S. EPA's estimate, and that's based on a paper from 2018 by Ramon Alvarez and colleagues. Uh, mm-hmm. And basically, that paper synthesizes a variety of new data that's come out in the last five years or so on methane emissions from oil and gas systems in the mm-hmm. U.S. So to my mind, the Alvarez paper is probably the best uh, source to use for domestic methane emissions, and their estimates are about 60% higher than EPA's estimates. Mm. Okay, um, that's quite so, a range. Yeah. yeah. So when you, when you include that, it, it changes things. And I also have a sensitivity case where I look at different global warming potentials for methane, because the greenhouse gas effect, uh, sort of the amount of heat that methane traps changes over time mm-hmm. uh, in a more dramatic way than carbon dioxide. So the climate impacts of methane are more pronounced over a short time period 
period than they are over a long time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I include both of those estimates so readers can get a sense uh, of what things look like under these sort of ranges of assumptions. Very interesting. And before we move into a, a discussion about uh, your findings, I did just want to ask one more methane question. So, so thinking back to our earlier conversation about how oil and gas have gotten different levels of attention in a number of ways, um, do you find that oil and gas actually have different methane emissions profiles? It seems to me that they would, but um, is there a quantification of the, that difference that you also incorporated? They do have different um, profiles, and uh, per unit of energy produced, natural gas tends to emit more methane. That's not a big surprise because natural gas basically is methane. Is methane, sure. Right, uh, but you know the way that oil and gas systems are classified is is kind of complicated, and there's mm-hmm. overlap, right? It's because oil wells produce natural gas. And many natural gas wells also produce oil. So um, the distinction between oil and natural gas wells and uh, attributing methane emissions to, you know, quote unquote oil and quote unquote natural gas is actually kind of fuzzy. Uh, And so there are different ways to do that. And I try to lay out clearly in the paper exactly how I allocate those emissions. But in short, um, you know, your your question is right on. You know, oil and natural gas have different methane profiles. Mm -hmm. It's also worth pointing out that coal uh, coal mining emits a substantial amount of methane as well. And I include coal mining uh, methane emissions in this analysis too. Great, Daniel. So thank you for letting me ask you so many background questions here. So let's let's talk a little bit about what you found. Can you break down some of the, the conclusions for us? Sure. So I, again, I'll, I'll be kind of simple in my description here. But basically, it, when you look at the US effects, so you have natural gas substituting for different fuels, you have oil uh, consumption increasing, and you have methane emissions going up under the high oil and gas scenario compared to the low oil and gas scenario. And if you look at the year 2030 in the United States, and you take all those factors into account, mm-hmm. uh, then greenhouse gas emissions are about 5% higher under my central uh, sort of estimates in the paper. So okay. if you compare high oil and gas to low oil and gas, greenhouse gas emissions are about 5% higher with a range uh, of about 2 to 10%, depending on assumptions about methane most Mostly. Okay. And so that's the US only story. And and that result is is pretty much in line with other studies that have looked at these domestic only impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. and, and so I don't think that's a huge surprise. Um, but what I thought was really interesting and what I really wanted to focus on in this study is the global effect of lower oil prices coming from the surge in US oil production. Mm-hmm. As we talked about earlier, under the high oil and gas scenario, global oil prices are estimated by the US EIA to be $20 a barrel lower uh, in the year 2030 than they would be under the low production scenario. That's right. That's that 80 versus $100 per barrel. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And it's it's really hard to estimate you know how people are going to change to, uh, change their consumption patterns in response to prices over you know fifteen or twenty year timescales. Um, so I take a range of estimates from the literature uh, on what's called the price elasticity of demand, which is basically how much additional oil people consume in response to this decline in prices. Mm-hmm. And again, I have a range, but at the low end, and the um, I use the low end here to try to be conservative, what I find is that in 2030, the world outside of the U.S. consumes about 3 million barrels per day more oil under the high oil and gas scenario in the U.S. So mm-hmm. all this new supply from the United States decreases prices so much that the world uses 3 million barrels per day more oil. And um, that's a lot of oil. Yeah. Can you put that into context for us? So in the high oil and gas world, compared to the low oil and gas world, my estimate is that 
Globally, we're consuming about 3 million barrels per day more oil. To put that in context, U.S. oil demand in 2030 in that year is projected to be about 18 million barrels per day. And global oil demand is about 108 million barrels per day. Uh, Today, the world is using about 98, 99 million barrels of oil per day. So, you know, an increase of somewhere between, you know, 2 and 3%. That might not sound like a lot. Actually, it kind of does to me. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, thanks for that context. Yeah. And so when we translate that 3 million barrels per day of oil bump in consumption, we, we, mm-hmm. if we translate that into greenhouse gas emissions, uh, then what you find is that uh, it translates into, at the low end, about uh, 450 million metric tons of carbon dioxide. That's a new number. That's a new unit. We haven't talked about that. But uh, that number is about twice as much as the US-only effect. So I said that US emissions increased by about 5%. 5%. Yep. Uh, The global effects are twice as big. Okay. And uh, to to have another reference point, all this new oil consumption increases uh, global emissions by about 450 million metric tons. And in the year 2016, the country of Brazil emitted a little bit less than that. So one way to think about this is that new supplies from the United States in 2030 add another Brazil (laughs) Brazil. to global greenhouse gas emissions. And that's kind of at the low end of my estimate. Thanks, Daniel. And just to expand a little bit more, can you say anything else about why those international impacts would be twice as large as the domestic impacts? Sure. It's pretty simple. It's um, you know based on the fact that uh, the U.S. uses a lot of oil, but the world uses a lot more oil than just okay. the U.S. So the U.S. accounts for somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of global oil demand. So when you look at the global impacts of lower oil prices, um, if, if oil prices are lower, everyone in the world is going to tend to use more oil because mm-hmm. of that, um, because of those low prices. So it's only natural that we would see a bigger effect in the places where people use the most oil. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., we only use 20% of the world's oil. And so mm-hmm. we're, we'd likely see a bigger effect internationally. I better be careful when I ask this because it's going to show I'm not an economist. But are there actually country by country elasticities for oil consumption that would mean that Prices are actually more elastic in some countries than than in others. Yeah, there are, and I need to be careful in answering it because I'm not a PhD economist either. <laughs> but um, there, there certainly are estimates out there for country by country elasticities. What I do in this paper is I take estimates for non-U.S. global elasticity for oil consumption or for oil demand, I should say. And so again, there's a there's a bunch of numbers that are out there that mm-hmm. make these estimates and I use a range of them. The one that I think is the most appropriate uh, for this paper is an elasticity of negative 0.15, okay. um, which comes from a recent review by Hill Huntington. And, um, and it applies to non-US oil consumption. Well, it's very clear from your description how many choices you've had to make around ranges of uncertainties and and assumptions that went into this work. And clearly, you've done a robust literature review to make the choices you have. But are there any other key assumptions or uh, pieces of information, judgment calls that you made uh, going into this work? Yeah, there's a number of them. And uh, and again, I'd refer people to the paper to, to get the full view. But the one that I want to highlight is uh, the role of OPEC. And uh, the price 
effects that I um, estimate based on uh, the USEIA's estimates, um, those assume that OPEC and other countries do not act in a sort of coordinated strategic way to offset increased U.S. oil production. And that is something that is happening to some extent today and could yep. continue to happen and could affect mm-hmm. uh, these price changes. Okay. And so basically OPEC's not factored into the equation. Uh, my gut sense is that uh, Decisions made by OPEC or OPEC Plus, as it's sometimes referred to today, because Russia is is um, is involved, is um, that they could have an effect, but it seems very unlikely to me that it would really fundamentally alter uh, the the storyline that we sort of have here. Um, you know, if you just kind of imagine a world in which the U.S. is did not have the shale revolution. Uh, you know, does anyone actually think we would be anywhere near $60 per barrel oil today? Seems, Seems unlikely, unlikely to me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's just kind of a gut check uh, for me. There are modelers out there who probably can answer that question more robustly than I can. Mm-hmm. But um, but I just want to acknowledge that OPEC decisions are, are left out and the price estimates are based purely on market decisions and the global uh, oil supply curve outside of any strategic decisions made by OPEC or others. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that clarification. Um, it's funny that you said, you know, try to imagine a world without the shale revolution. And I will be honest, having now worked at RFF for a decade, it is very hard to imagine how different uh, the policy and research landscape would be were that shale gas revolution not to exist. So yeah. it really has colored a lot of the uh, the thinking in the past, you know, seven to 10 years. Absolutely. And, you know, for good and bad. Uh, there, yeah. you know, I wrote a whole book about this. Uh, and I remember one of the first times I met Alan Krupnik, who, who's at RFF and who we both know and love. Um, <laughs> I, I was talking to him about the, the shale revolution thing. And this was maybe 2012, 2013. And I asked him, you know, so how big a story is this shale story yeah. to you? Where does it stack up in the history of, you know, energy developments? And he, you know, basically said it's the biggest thing yep. in at least a generation uh, and probably since, you know, the 60s and 70s and the OPEC oil embargoes and all that and, yep. and maybe even more important. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, certainly as an energy researcher, I can't imagine the world without it. Um, yeah. It's certainly yeah. where I've been spending most of my time. Yeah. Well, and on sort of on that same vein, um, the growth of oil and gas production in the U.S., isn't really going away at all, in fact. Um, And in fact, oil production, I was reading recently that oil production, at least in Permian Basin, is at the highest level, I think, that it's ever been. And so, you know, this this trend is is here to stay, at least in the short term, potentially in the in the longer term. So, you know, given that context, how do we need to think about the climate impacts moving forward, even as production continues to expand? Well, you're absolutely right that production is growing at a really rapid clip. It's been outpacing pretty much everyone's expectations year in and year out. And if you look at projections from the EIA and many other organizations, it's not just the EIA, going forward, um, you see you know, pretty much everyone expects this production to continue growing for years uh, and really decades to come. Even under the low oil and gas production scenarios in the uh, the paper that I include, production is essentially flat and even growing a little bit. Mm-hmm. That, and that's under the low production right, scenario. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, we're really in a different world. And when I think about uh, future uh, the future in the past when it comes to the shale revolution, I think that 
there have been some real climate benefits uh, from low-cost natural gas over the mm-hmm. last 10 years in the United States, 10, 15 years. Um, you know, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions are down near their 1990s levels, um, and that's been really helpful for the climate. Natural gas has played a big role there. Mm-hmm. But going forward, you know, when you see this scale of production and the potential impacts in the marketplace uh, on greenhouse gas emissions, it's hard to avoid the idea that, you know, these high levels of oil and gas production are likely to increase global greenhouse gas emissions. And it just kind of uh, is another finger pointing in the direction of the need for, uh, you know, climate policy that can actually start to get a handle on this climate change challenge that, mm-hmm. you know, the entire world is is grappling with. And without those climate policies uh, coming into place at, at, you know, a federal level, that's where I think it would be most effective. Um, it's hard to see, um, it's hard to see how all of this growth in oil production is really, um, you know, particularly compatible with a low carbon future that we mm-hmm. might want. Thanks. Uh, we got a little metaphysical there. I like it. The future and the past is great. <laughs> the future and the past. Maybe it's all the same. <laughs> Maybe. It's just one big circle of life. That's right. Well, Daniel, I will stick to our regular regimen and close with top of the stack. But I want to note for our listeners that we have expressed offline a little bit of envy that our guests get to talk about what they're reading and listening to when sometimes we'd love to share something that we're reading and listening to. So Daniel, it is your turn. Can you tell us what is on the top of your stack these days? I've been waiting. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I've got a bunch of recommendations, but but the thing that I have really been so thrilled about lately is a collection of songs that I learned about through an episode of uh, Fresh Air, the um, the radio show, and um, amazing. The uh, so th- this uh, there's a book called uh, it might be a series of books called the Golden Age of Industrial Musicals, and these <laughs> musicals were written for um, you know basically industry conferences uh, where the you know oil industry would get together or the you know electricity industry would get together and they would want to sort of pep up their workforce with a celebratory you know song about the glories of their industry mm, and yes, so don't we if all? <laughs> that's right we should have these in rff <laughs> that's right um, yes and so if you just sort of go online and do some searching for golden age of industrial musicals there are a number of songs uh, about standard oil uh, which ah. are just completely amazing. Uh, a number of songs uh, by Exxon. It was Exxon at the time, not Exxon Mobil. Right. Um, there's okay. one called Up Came Oil, which is, it sort of sounds like something that from like, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, <laughs> except it's all about the discovery of oil and Edwin Drake <laughs> and all this stuff. It's really wonderful. So um, just do some internet searching for Golden Age of Industrial Musicals and you wow. won't be disappointed. Daniel, I'm, I'm just going to say, you know, at some point we probably should do a segment called top of top of the stack which is in which we rank all of the top of the stacks and i'm not gonna lie this might be my winner so far because that's amazing i also just want to point out to our listeners that daniel's career before he started in uh, energy research was as a musician so daniel brings he wrote the uh, theme music for this very podcast series so he is a man of many talents and when he gives you a musical recommendation you should take it quite seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Kristen. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, great, Daniel. This has really been a pleasure. I hope we can find another time to talk to each other. And uh, yeah, but thank you again for telling us about this this latest research. Absolutely. I look forward to talking uh, on the podcast and off the podcast. Sounds good. 
Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.